I'm now joined by Amma Badawi, um, Head of Charter and Operations and Supply Chain Division within the World Food Programme. Amma, you, you've got an interesting background because you've, you were a grain trader in the private sector for, for many years, perhaps the majority of your career, and now find yourself working for the World Food Programme. Um, so you're now representing a humanitarian a public good perspective on that. Give us your perspective on what you've just heard in the previous session and, and why you think the trade is or isn't as important as we've heard. Well, Mark, thank you very much. Uh, first of all, uh, let me thank you and, and uh, the other uh, panelists that uh, were participating in the previous segment. Uh, very interesting discussion and quite a bit of, uh, of uh, experience there that has been shared. Um, um, it's a good question you're asking because many people look at the humanitarian um, um, mandates and activities and think it's very different from the world of trading and shipping grain uh, in the private sector. And there are some things that are different, but for the most part, um, there is, that is an integral system the WFP uses to work with the trading community, the suppliers of the world, and the uh, infrastructure on the ground in many countries, be it the, the countries of production and supply, or the recipient countries who are in need for the, for the food that is being uh, procured and, and uh, shipped. Um, so WFP basically makes it an important um, uh, objective to work with the systems that are available to support local economies, first of all, in the um, uh, countries that need the food and, and, and the human beings, our fellow human beings that need uh, the, the food. At, at the same time, work with the existing infrastructure on supplies and investment that is available from the uh, uh, multinationals and the trading firms in all of the supply um, uh, uh, points that are available for the World Food Programme. How do you when, you, when you look at it, is it is it the most efficient way of allocating the food that we need within within the world system and from from your perspective to what extent are you impacted in getting that food to where it's needed to, to those who need it the most um, and and obviously that depends it's a reliance on the grain trade yeah uh, let's break it down a little i mean first of all i mean trading um grain traders need by nature to follow what they can do to um, uh, answer their shareholders and provide a good return on the investment uh, that they're, they've made and, and the sharehold, their shareholders have made. Um, at the same time, um, the, 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 the question of whether the system as a whole runs in a way that allows for every human being to get access to the supply of food that, that is needed, that's obviously the, the big question that uh, we're trying to take part in, in or at least attempting to address here. And, and, you know, piece by piece, you may look at different markets with their own different and interesting uh, profiles and what needs to be done in the European market versus what needs to be done in other uh, local markets. And that is fine. And that's mm. the way it's supposed to be is that these markets need to function naturally mm. um, and not spontaneously, but naturally. Yeah. However, um, that said, there, there needs to be a very focused and concerted effort to try and work with the humanitarian community to try and uh, give some uh, 
ability for the humanitarian community to have reasonable access to food instead of having to compete, uh, which we have to because we have to procure uh, part of the food that we have to carry and deliver to, to the disadvantaged uh, recipients mm. for, uh, for the World Food Program uh, as a mandate. But, um, and, and obviously the question is not to get any free giveaways or yeah. anything, but, uh, but, but for the trading community to keep that in mind is that it is not just a free trading open uh, space where the, the World Food, Food Program can simply uh, endlessly compete with the other buyers in the world. I mean, there needs to be a little bit of a, yeah. a, a thought about how that can be best done so that food can be delivered to areas where affordability is really not on the table. Mm. Um, in some countries that need that food cannot yeah. simply afford to go buy, otherwise they would have, mm. and WFP would not be called in to mm. come and help. Mm. I mean, as I said in the introduction, I mean, you, you have spent a good part of your career in the private sector, working in the grain trade. You've now gone over to, to the public sector. What, what surprised you now being in the public sector, looking back at the at the grain trade, what 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 stands out for you in terms of making that transition? Yeah, two things. I think just to to to, to keep it simple. The first one is as you know, being in the trading environment and the private sector environment. I mean, there are uh, there is the ability to make a determination that maybe this is not a tr the trade for me. Yeah. Maybe this is not the country where I feel like it's the most effective to use my resources as a, as a grain company in the, in the business of exporting grain or a shipping company in the business of carrying grain. Um, in the humanitarian uh, realm, I mean, failure is not an option. Right. When w World Food Program is called upon to come and help, that kind of is the last resort to sustain and maintain uh, what is possible to get keep food moving in uh, some of those ports, unfortunately. Um, so. Again, when failure is not an option, the, the, the determining whether that's a, the trade for you or not is off the table. Right. So then it's by necessity then the, the innovative part of, uh, of our uh, group, um, the, 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 the confidence that, that has to be built to go in, find a way, uh, rain or shine, and deliver the food. Um, it may not be the most competitive way to do it sometimes because of the nature of, of the areas where food has to be delivered and, and it's just very challenging, very difficult. Uh, functionality may not be at the market uh, standards perhaps uh, at times where the, the receiving uh, vehicles, uh, rail systems and, and so forth can be a bit uh, something that has to be worked on. And that's the other thing that uh, is different from the, the, the world of trading where you can potentially rely mostly on other partners to do the rest and you just do your narrow trade that makes the most sense for you and, and you pick the commodity you want and within the humanitarian uh, realm again uh, you know you have to go find every possible solution to every possible problem that will will be faced to make sure that you deliver the goods at the end of the day um, as much as possible and, and, and there are times where you know you end up where it is not possible, obviously hostility and so forth. And that, that is usually unfortunate when it happens. But for the most part, it is figuring out the most efficient way to get something done. And, and no is not an answer. Yeah. I want to come back to that point as to how well understood that failure of the trade is not an option for you in a second. But um, you said something there about you know, the list of challenges that you can face that 
can be multitudes of them. Um, just give us a sense of what those are um, with either live examples or, or things that you've understood in, in the chain. Um, I mean, simply just uh, doing the day-to-day -day stuff that traders do, um, trying to fix a vessel, for example, to carry a, com a commodity a shipment of, of wheat from point A to point B, the, the need to make sure that all of these compliances that have to be addressed because of um, the concern, of course, of uh, whether the vessel has traded in certain ports prior to it being uh, acquired or to perform services under the WFP uh, um, uh, charter, for example. Um, that is, is something that requires quite a bit of vetting and quite a bit of ensuring that that the, uh, all of the uh, challenges that can be faced or criticisms that can be brought about by trading with a certain flag or a certain vessel that has called at certain ports uh, have been just looked at and addressed to ensure that you know there, there's no um, we're not adding more challenges mm. to the simple fact that we're just trying to fix or contract for a vessel to carry from point A to point B. Um, um, most of uh, our obviously very large donors uh, provide what is called in-kind donation, which basically we are given the grain and we just go find the vessels that will yeah. come and, and carry that grain. So we need to make sure that the, those vessels, as they are contracted with, are compliant also with that donor country rules mm. and regulations. And uh, so, you know, so there's so many examples of yeah. that that we also have to make sure. Yeah. So uh, you, you, the fluidity is there, but, but there is also good guardrails for us to not be able to kind of flippantly going and doing this and doing that. And so, that, so those are part of the challenges that do exist. And we've, we've developed good programs and good systems within the, the World Food yeah. Program to, to work with those and, and kind of expecting what to do. And work on that. You, you talked, as, as I said, about you know the, the failure of the trade is not really an option. You you are the the, the trade of last resort, as as you said. When you've now you've come over to the World Food Program side, do you think that the the, the private sector um, trade really understands just what a last resort you are? And are there any other things that you've discovered as you've come over that you would have wanted to have known when you were in the grain trade? private side um, from the from WFP perspective? Yeah, I mean, it's always very hard to obviously generalize. Uh, I think there are a few a few companies uh, that WFP partners with that, that understand well uh, what WFP, uh, the way WFP works. And um, but there are some that don't. Uh, and then that's fine. And that's fair the way it is. And, and we it's probably we can do a stronger job or a better job trying to develop uh, broader communication with the newer partners and try and, and explain to them exactly how things work. Um, but at the end of the day, I mean, you know, if I imagine myself sitting still in, a, in the private sector and I see a, a World Food Program tender for a cargo of corn or sorghum um, being floated and then it's all public and it's all provided, uh, you still as a trader, you're looking at this as, look, can I make money on this? It is not like, do I, do I have no option? in doing this or not. I mean, obviously we have registered the partners and vendors and, and they all get to see our requests for offers on these commodities. And they see all the terms and conditions that WFP will look for those partners to understand and, and, and comply with as well. 
But again, that trader can decide, I'm not going to offer on this tender. Mm -hmm. I'll come when my position is stronger and I want to be more aggressive, for example. Um, so that doesn't mean that, that those, um, you know, the, the, the private sector misunderstands the World Food Program and the way it, it operates, but they have an option to say, not this week, yeah. I'll come back next week. I want to go a little bit deeper on that, if I, I may, and um, obviously I respect your ability to respond, but I mean, how, how often do you find yourself with, with no or limited responses to tenders that, that you put out, and, and what do you do in those circumstances? Yeah, I mean, if we zoom out a bit from that uh, specific point, I mean, obviously it depends on the circumstances mm -hmm. and what is going on. And, and if you do have uh, WFP, let's say we are tendering for a commodity that is going into an area that just uh, is coming out or is suffering from or, and, and, or continuing to sustain itself under difficult uh, conditions, warlike conditions, hostilities and so forth. Um, I mean, obviously that would um, raise a question whether um, a trader wants to be aggressive on that one order. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, some might and say, look, I think maybe this is the only way our grain and our commodities can access mm -hmm. that market. You know, we partner with uh, the World Food Program and, and there you go. And we see that with the Black Sea Grain Initiative. And th there was quite a bit of question as whether this would help or mm -hmm. not help. Does it cause more question than answers or, or not? And obviously we can see, the world can see over the last uh, six to uh, nine months, we, we've seen quite a bit of grain move out. It, it has helped greatly to get some price stability, um, uh, not only for the European countries, but for the world, for people that are not even trading anywhere near the Black Sea, but at least you can see the world prices are retreating or, or coming down and, and it's helping. Yeah. Uh, everybody, uh, you know, obviously we've all have seen this pull forward mm -hmm. that happened uh, uh, during the pandemic and right after the pandemic. And we can see that when we look at the world map and we say we have these markets and they're all set and everybody knows what their trading lanes are and trading partners are. But then you start pulling forward, you can actually cause some of those systems to uh, run thin. Yeah. And, and that can cause ripple effect and where you might be trading in a very niche area and you feel like this is protected and this is not for the rest of the world to worry about, it can actually impact your prices. It can impact your ability to manage your supply uh, pull or push, you know, supply chain uh, yeah. management. So the resilience issue on supply chain is something that now we're all looking at and yeah. figuring out, is this part of us putting the blinders on or do we need to look at the whole picture, look at things holistically and say, well, maybe I'll do this little bit differently within my small trade so that it can have an impact on the broader yeah. picture. And does it work that way or does it all has to be top down instead of bottom up? I do want to ask you about, you know, this point about the role of, of, of government and, and the public sector in, in the grain trade. I mean, we heard in the previous session very persuasive case that the the market is by and large doing the the job in terms of the allocation but there clearly are times as you've alluded to one perhaps in the pandemic or in in global conflicts where that's not the case and and the grain and the food doesn't get to where it needs to go. Do you think there is a, a broader role for the public sector to play for governments to play and and if so what what would that be? I mean I want to be careful here not not to not not to be um, uh, advocating for any particular government to do any no, particular, no, particular things. Yeah. Um, you know, but 
I think I think of course there is a a positive role for governments to play, uh, and and obviously it will depend how one would analyze new rules, new regulations, um, type uh, of enactments that would come, and whether they're well intended but they fall short, or whether they actually do hit the target and serve a purpose that is positive that does feed into the greater desire to have more fluidity mm. in trade uh, and trade routes mm. and and uh, more clarity, transparency. I heard from Philippe uh, saying that that also is something that the private sector, um, as well as the entire really kind of uh, world that, that is involved in world trade one way or another. Um, and then the question of transparency is like, well, okay, how much is good transparency and how much is too much information mm. that can actually inadvertently cause distortion in the market where it is not then well defined for a trader to know what to focus on because everybody wants to have a piece of that mm. and then everybody's trying to enact new rules to try and access that mm. so yeah, perhaps this is maybe more of a question than an answer to your question but i, I think there is always a positive role mm. i think measured um adjustments that are intended to serve a good purpose and to support other nations mm. um, within a geographical area and broadly mm. is obviously something that is very helpful yeah. for yeah. the trade and for the humanitarian community yeah. ultimately that works with the trade to to, yeah. to source what it needs to help the people that need to be mm. fed and we should I guess be also honest and recognize that the, the Black Sea Grain Initiative in and of itself was a government intervention that involved governments in order to come to an agreement that kept or, or reopened and maintained the openness of a, a key supply corridor. Yes, I mean, obviously it was a partnership and a good discussion that, that uh, kicked off uh, that ability to access that that area, which is hugely important for the world market. And we all see when we look at almost 30 million tons, almost a thousand shipments. And yes, it's not flawless and there's delays and there's concerns about, you know, access and so forth. But it did provide the world with access to quite a bit of chunk of the breadbasket that is needed. And there's no question that if this continues, as we all hope it would, um, it would continue to help stabilize prices is we're all happy that prices have gone down uh, for wheat corn yeah. and others but um obviously if any time we do something that uh, shakes up the system mm. and provides uncertainty and lack of predictability which is again very important for the markets mm. very important for everyone um, to be able to understand trust and rely on their supply sources their countries of destination, their clients, their customers, and so forth. Um, anytime you, you alter that, then we will cause yet another shock to the mm -hmm. system. And it always, we, we've learned obviously from the pandemic mm -hmm. that we're not that smart to see things too far yeah. beyond a month or two or three. Uh, and, and we all think we do. And we have research and developments and departments that are looking mm -hmm. at things and crunching the numbers. 
But ultimately, when something breaks, you have to stop and fix it, and yeah. stopping causes an issue. Yeah, and that, that's a question that, that is, is coming through on um, from, from the audience as well. I'll just pick up on, you've, you've talked about the pandemic. The question is, is, is how big an effect did that have on, on you? We've heard a little bit in the previous panel um, on, the, on the trade itself. Um, and then linked to that, another question is, is, is how do you, I mean, particularly for you, how do you plan for those unforeseen shocks? I mean, can you? Is there any way that you could have predicted and been out in front of a pandemic or a geopolitical conflict like we see in Ukraine today? Yeah, in front of it is, is, is of, I would say it's is a big ask to try and be in front of a pandemic of this magnitude. Yeah. And I think we all had to figure things out um, and make adjustments as quickly as we can. But there were things that were very difficult to deal with. Mm. And again, just to keep it within the supply chain management style of, of uh, or at least discussion, uh, you know, obviously oh, most of us stayed home trying to protect ourselves, our families yeah. and, and, and others and our colleagues and, and clearly, you know, uh, waiting for a, a, a vaccine and vaccines to emerge and come out and as things developed, but you know, we had ships sitting there with grain, um, not being allowed to enter into ports. Mm -hmm. And and those decisions were made because of the uncertainty of the unknown. Mm -hmm. And the, the, you know, it's, it's in hindsight, you can say, well, why was that necessary? Right. Uh, but, but maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. And obviously, I, I'm not an expert on, on trying to decide whether the only way to address holding off a potential ships coming in with crew members that could be carrying the, the virus when they didn't know without having the ability to in, inspect their health right. and make that determination. Um, maybe that's the simple step to do, but what that does or and that did, and th these are some of the, the, the challenges we had to deal with, is that backing up the entire system yeah. to try and figure out how to deal with two weeks at a time quarantining, um, uh, mandates. Mm -hmm. And then when ships come in, who's going to the ports, all these labor um, uh, workers that have to be out there working, mm -hmm. they couldn't flip a, a laptop and discharge a vessel mm -hmm. off of their laptop. They actually have to be out there and, and dealing with equipment and being there together and trying to deal with their safety and, and, mm -hmm. um, and all of that. These were things that are not hard to be ahead of and in front of, even when you're um, trained to deal with emergencies. But one of the things people don't know that the, the, in the World Food Program, at least our supply chain division, 80% of our activities are emergency response activities. Mm -hmm. and, and we were not sitting there trading because it's good and we don't trade, by the way, WFP procures and delivers. Um, so as on the private sector, people will trade, I can buy and sell and maybe make a, a profit, and, you know, table topping, a quick yeah. trade. Uh, World Food Program, we cannot do that. Mm -hmm. we, we don't hedge our commodities we, mm -hmm. because we take them, we have to procure mm -hmm. them and deliver. So there are things that we couldn't anticipate and try and work through the pandemic mm -hmm. with to try and, and apply these things. But at the same time, we were able to continue to deliver under very, very difficult circumstances. And, and we had a lot of cooperation also from ports and port authorities mm -hmm. and governments mm -hmm. that wanted the supplies because obviously those were also needed as mm -hmm. well as protecting people mm -hmm. and keeping them at home. I hesitate to ask the, the question, given the fact, you, as you say, I mean, you exist to respond to emergencies and very, by very definition, the emergencies are somewhat always present. But 
even within that, what, what keeps you up at night? What keeps you awake at night? Um, well, all of the above, I have to say. <laughs> it, it would be tough to say there is one thing that, uh, that would keep me up at night. Um, yeah, unexpected disruptions are always the, the, what keeps you up at night. And it's not because only one is worried. It's because you get the phone calls and you have to chase people with your phone as well. So you're up at night trying to find any possible way to execute. Um, and you just can't take a break because that is when, at least personally, I feel we're needed the most. Yeah. When everything else, everybody kind of gives puts their hand up in the air and says, I can do this. And we get the call and you guys, you bring the goods. We have expertise. We have amazing uh, talent within the World Food Program. Uh, we have a number of, of just absolutely talented folks that uh, we work together. We um, first order uh, of action is to figure out a solution. Mm -hmm. uh, the how comes and follows next. Yeah. But it, you just have to figure out a solution. And, and to some extent, that's kind of a comfort yeah. because you know you just, you're going to take the dive. Yeah. And somehow you're going to have to come out from the other side. Yeah. And, and, and ironically, that, that is a sense of comfort. It's yeah. like, oh, good, nobody's going to blame you for trying too hard. Yeah, quite right. Yeah. Another question which, which I put to, to Ted Swinkles in the, in the previous session. Um, is related to, to climate. How, how much of that is a concern, a change in climate, the impact that it's going to have on, on your activities, potentially your ability to, to procure and, and supply to the, to the most vulnerable communities in the world? How much of that is a factor in your mind? Yeah, I mean, it's, it is a huge factor. And I, again, I won't pretend to be a climate expert, uh, but, but I can tell you just from having been in, in, in the trade and the industry for you know, three, four decade, decades, probably now, I know that things look different. Everybody says that. Yeah. Um, you know, but we were just having that discussion. Well, what data are we looking at that tells us mm -hmm. that they, it is actually different? Yeah. Because um, there's so many data to look at. There's so many manifestations of the way the climate is behaving, particularly of late. We are all seeing that as well. We're seeing hurricane seasons mm. being more severe, more tense, rain being more severe, more tense, drought being more se severe, more intense. And, and the question is, the crescendo there, is that going to get away from us and as a private citizen and as a, as a you know, fellow human being on the planet? I, I wonder, I mean, if we are, um, daring this too much um, by raising the question, which is, which is a legitimate question. Is this natural? Is this just normal cycles, mm -hmm. large cycles that the planet has to go through? Or is it something that we need to stop and mm -hmm. stop quickly? Um, but clearly there's so many calls publicly and, and by the UN about the climate concerns. There's a lot of effort being made um, to, to try and, and find ways to quickly move into that direction of getting the right orientation on the climate question, trying to develop some resiliency. Mm. Um, so as we're scratching our head as to what is the one idea that would work in this industry and what is the one fuel type that would work for the other industry and how can we put this together to deal with the farmers that are producing, deal with the families that are running out of food as it is. Mm. And all you need to do is just dial the, the, the production numbers down slightly because climate has decided to be up a notch 
and then you're going to lose people very quickly. There is no question about those things. Mm. So we can question why we need to be concerned mm. and what is the data that is causing us to be concerned. But there is a question that we need to do something now just in case mm. we're wrong. Mm. I mean, that is a simple question to ask yeah. ourselves. And I think as fellow human beings, we all say, well, let's just not take chances too much. Yeah. Maybe yeah. we can try now harder mm. and see if we can catch up with this quicker. Mm. It, it's probably a, an unfair question to, to finish our discussion. I'd like to bring um, the other members of the first panel back in to, to close out our, our session this afternoon. But before I do that, now you've got experience of, of both sides of the house, if you like. What, what, is there one or two things that you would, would hope that gets done better in terms of the interaction between the humanitarian programs on the one side and, and the grain trade on the other? Yeah, I think, I think between the, the private sector and the humanitarian world, there's, each has its set of uh, skills and, and advantages. But I think there's quite a bit of uh, complements between the two. Um, and it is, as I mentioned earlier, I don't think it is as drastic and as wide, um, wide for, apart from each other or one another as as people would quickly jump into yeah i think i think there's quite a bit of similarities mm. uh, i mean again we always want to work with the existing economies the existing infrastructure the existing investments mm. uh, from all of our suppliers all of our service providers and partners uh, clearly and, and it wouldn't make any sense to go other way and say i want to do my own thing mm. and duplicate and replicate or take over. I mean, it just doesn't make sense at all. So by necessity, we, we do that. And, and I think that is the one thing out of the two that I would tell you that is just maybe not as obvious, but it it's just right there. It's at the core of really how the, the humanitarian community and the, and the trade work together. It's that's a spontaneous way to, to that, that I think I see it happen. There's just a natural comfort by the private sector to see uh, the humanitarian um, uh, in the, it's not an industry, but the humanitarian realm yeah. steps in to try and work on something that seems to need a little bit extra help and a little bit extra push and quite a bit of diplomacy also, which is another important piece that sometimes, the, you know, the, my colleagues, the old colleagues, traders, when mm. you talk, everybody's like, well, of course you want to make money. Mm. And, and you, you know, the diplomacy, it's not necessarily the first thing that everybody wants to say. Well, I think my friend trader here, you know, his, you know, angle here is just to make this better. Yeah. And, and, but the truth is, yes, traders, of course, want to make it better because that's how you make, make your investment better. rewarding. Um, so the, 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 the last thing I would say, which is the second thing you asked me, is, um, is maybe a, a broader conversation about broadening the communication between the humanitarian and, and the private sector. Mm. Because in and of itself, just designating a question about what's the difference between the private sector and the humanitarian seems to be a question that comes from that uh, lack of maybe having a broader conversation, more active conversation, more engagement mm. to try and be one uh, and not think of, I mean, the structure of humanitarian is maybe different to execute procuring of goods, food and cereals and so forth and delivering it and distributing it, same as the private sector. Uh, but, but obviously the private sector has shareholders and the structure is to work for profit. 
but beyond that, I think it's like, you know, a government school, a private school, both need to educate people. And, mm. and that is what we're trying to do mm. is produce, carry, deliver, distribute food for people mm. on the planet. Terrific perspective. I'm a, I could spend at least another hour um, talking to you. It's an absolute privilege to, um, to sit down with you. I really appreciate the opportunity to do that. Mm.